morning, saints. Let us pray as we open the Word this morning. Father, would you grant us to pause in our thoughts and in our hearts for just a moment to savor the privilege of what we are doing, worshiping you together in spirit and in truth. You have granted us to observe both ordinances this morning, baptism and the Lord's Supper. You have granted us to pray together, to read your scriptures, to lift our voices in worship, and now to, enter, to open your inspired word together. These are privileges. It is a privilege to worship you, a privilege to know you, a privilege to call you Father, a privilege to engage in these things. And we ask, Father, that as we continue in this time together, that you would help us to rightly think about what we are about to do, that as we receive the preached word, we continue to worship that our hearts would worship as we hear the word preached, that we, would, that we would receive the word gladly, that we would respond with great love and joy as acts of worship, and we pray, Father, that you would receive it as, as worship. Of course, we need your help in these things, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would, would give us that help. We pray for it boldly in the name of our brother Jesus. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. And now for the third time. We're going to read all of the passage that extends from chapter 13 to, I'm sorry, verse 13 to verse 34. So if you would stand with me as you're finding your place there, we'll read Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13 and through verse 34. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the, word, the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, 
and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died left no offspring. And the second took her and died leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, also the woman died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher, for you have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. You may be seated. What is it that God really wants from me? This morning we consider the final scene in this section in which different parties approach Jesus to ask Him questions. Those first two were seeking to trap Jesus in His words so that they might have reason to accuse him and kill him. But this last is different. The scribe here is not trying to trip Jesus up. But verse 28 indicates that he asked Jesus a question specifically because he saw Jesus answering well the Pharisees, the Herodians, and Sadducees. He recognizes that Jesus is a man with answers. And so he asks, which commandment is the most important of all? Which is to say, what does God really want from me? And that's a great question. That may be the best question that a human being can ask. And by God's grace, the answer to that question should lead to three distinct places in succession. First, that question should lead one to utter despair. Because when I find out what God really wants from me, then I should realize 
I can't do that. And I am utterly doomed. But the answer to that question should secondly lead me to cling to Christ in faith. He alone is the one who can help me with my failing. The answer to that question should thirdly lead me to joyfully give God what He really wants from me. Now for those who have already trusted in Christ, Jesus' answer to that question simply tells us what life in the kingdom should look like. In fact, each of these interactions, these three interactions that Jesus has had in this section from verse 13 through 34 has provided an opportunity for us to see characteristics of life in the kingdom of God. Those who belong in the kingdom of God, they give to God what belongs to God, render to God what belongs to God. Those who belong in the kingdom, they live by the word and by the power of God. And now this third question gives us an opportunity to also see Another characteristic or a couple of characteristics of life in the kingdom. This question, what is the most important commandment? Or what is it that God really wants from me? Shows us additional characteristics of life in the kingdom. And the first characteristic that we see is that life in the kingdom is characterized by exclusive loving worship of God. Exclusive loving worship of God. Look again at verse 29. Jesus answered, The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 6, which was read for us at the beginning of our service this morning by Pastor John. The idea is that God is one. That is that Yahweh alone is to be worshipped by His creation. That idea is put forward over and over in the surrounding passages in the book of Deuteronomy. Worship Yahweh alone. Do not be drawn away after other gods. God is one. There's one God. Now, the scribe here who's asking Jesus this question, he later in the passage makes a commentary on this passage and on Jesus' answer. And Jesus believes that the scribe's commentary is wise, we find. Now look at, look at the scribe's commentary in verse 32. He says, you're right, teacher. You've truly said that He is one and there is no other besides Him. So he's, he's affirming this interpretation that, that for God to be one means that there is no other beside Him. God alone is to be worshipped. To, to worship Him is not merely to engage in, in outward acts of ritual, the things that we've done this morning could be merely outward acts of ritual. God is not after just merely outward acts of ritual, but to, to worship God is to love Him with all that you are. Mark 12.30 reads, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. To love, as, as the word is used here, is to have warm regard for or, or interest in another. It, it is to cherish, to have, to have affection for. In other words, this worship that, that we are called to give exclusively to God is to be born of deep, all-encompassing affection for God. 
I say, I say deep and all-encompassing because of all the modifiers that, that Jesus has quoted from, from Deuteronomy chapter 6. You're supposed to do it with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That's simply a way of saying love or cherish God with every part of you, your whole self, all your emotions, all your desire, all your faculty of thought and reason, all your energy. So, all, all, all my emotions, my, my joy, my sorrow, my anger, everything is motivated by loving worship of Him. So, when I hate, I hate what God hates. When I love, I love what God loves. And when, when I grieve, I'm grieving because those created in God's image are hurting. When I'm angry, it's because God or those made in His image have been dishonored. My, my emotions are, are charged by loving worship of God. My desires also, the, the things that I long for in life, they can all be traced back to Loving worship of Him. If I desire a robust career, it is, it is to have broad influence from which I might make Him known. If I desire material things, it's that I might share them with others for the sake of His name. My, my desire, all of them, they, they, they find their genesis in loving worship of God. My mind, the, the thoughts that I think, the things that I, that I read, watch, listen to, the things that I create, all of those things are motivated by loving worship of Him. My strength. If I, if I think of my life as a finite cup of energy, and I encourage you to think of your life that way. It's a finite cup of energy. And just as surely as that clock, I've got a clock right there, that they've put there just to remind me what time it is. Just as surely as that, that hand on the clock is moving, your cup of finite energy, which is your life, it is being poured out this very moment. And there is going to come a day, there's going to come a minute, there's going to come an exact second known to God when that cup will be exhausted, poured out, How I pour that cup out should be motivated by loving worship of God. God is one. He alone is to be worshipped. And, and that worship is to come from this, this deep, all-encompassing affection. All that you are as a person, let it be devoted to God in loving worship. You know, this, this is what we were designed to do. This is what you were made for. To worship God in love alone. If we, if we go back to the beginning of the Bible, we find that this is actually what man failed to do when he rejected God in the garden. The original temptation was to worship self, to love self and creation above the, the Creator. 
Man traded the adoration and worship of God for the worship and adoration of images in the form of man and created things. As as Romans chapter 1 depicts, when man does not worship God, but rather worships created things, loves these created things, instead of loving ultimately God above everything else, when man does that, he is doomed to walk in hopeless malfunction and misery. Man's only true joy can be found in loving fellowship with God. And so, the central command then of God's law is to do this. Worship God, loving Him with your whole being. It should be no surprise that in this kingdom brought by Christ, the kingdom that makes all things right, that that, uh, seeks to reverse the fall of man, it should be no surprise that, that this kind of worship of God, loving Him with all that we are, that this will characterize that kingdom. That people will function as they were designed. Life in the kingdom is characterized by loving worship of God. So, our lives, those of us who belong in the kingdom of Christ, by faith in the atoning death and life-giving resurrection of Christ, our lives should be characterized by loving worship of God. 1 John 2.15, some of you may be familiar with this, it says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. I was reading 1 John with a brother a, a, a week or so ago and, and, and he, he threw this question out. Does this, does, this, does this mean that we just don't enjoy any earthly things and we just... Think about heavenly things all the time. Well, certainly not. We can and should enjoy the good gifts that God has given, but we should enjoy them as just that, good gifts that God has given. Everything that we enjoy in this world should lead us to impromptu expressions of thanksgiving and worship. Psalm 16, 2 says, I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And what the psalmist is saying there is that God is my ultimate good. And if we bring other scriptures to bear upon that one, we find, for instance, in in James chapter 1, that every good gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. God is my ultimate good, and every good thing that I enjoy is from Him. So all the gifts that He gives me are intended to be conduits for enjoying Him. Isn't that a wonderful thing? All of the, all of the good worldly, earthly things, the things that I can touch in this, in this life are intended to turn my attention back to Him, to enjoy Him. Now, when the things of the world and earthly delights become delights in and of themselves without reference to the one who gave them to me, well, that, that's when we have a problem. It's all a matter of focus and perspective. And, and, and Paul is helpful in this way in, in some of the things that he writes. For instance, 1 Timothy 6.17. If you're taking notes, you might write that down. 1 Timothy 6.17. Paul writes there, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, that is prideful, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He provides us with everything to enjoy. 
See, Paul's saying God gives us things to enjoy, so let's enjoy them, but let's not set our hopes on them. Let's set our, our hope on God, the God who gives us these things to enjoy. Likewise, Paul writes in, in 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. That is, if it's received with reference to Him. If we receive it with, with our minds on Him, that this good God has given this to me and I'm enjoying it with my mind on Him. So, think about this. A non-gluttonous meal can and should be savored to the glory and praise of God. Should be. As we're, as we're enjoying that steak or that pasta, whatever that is, we, we should be thinking, praise the Lord. This tastes good. I mean, how kind of the Lord is it to give us taste buds? He didn't have to do this. How kind and creative is it that He did this? That, that He made joy, food enjoyable to us. Lord, You didn't have to. Thank You for doing this. This could have been just mush. Some of you in COVID, you lost your taste buds, didn't you? How fun was that? Are, 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 do you praise God that you have taste buds? What a gift for you to lose those taste buds for a while. And then a gift for you to give, get, get them back. Enjoying creation in nature. Walk, walking out into the sun and feeling that heat on your face. Praise the Lord for, for, for that sensation, for, for these, these nerve endings in my face, and for that sun out there millions of miles away. Praise God for that feeling. Enjoying a good workout. That, that blood pumping that feels good. Thank you, Lord, for that. Enjoying relations with your spouse. All these things should cause you to worship. Turn your attention to Him who is the giver of all good things. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord. All that we receive should turn our attention to Him in loving worship. And everything that we pursue should be pursued with an eye toward worship. As I prepare this expense report for this Fortune 5000 company, is, that, is there such a thing or is it Fortune 500? Whatever. You know what I mean. I'm a pastor. I don't prepare expense reports. They don't trust me to do these things. As I do those kinds of seemingly mundane things, how do I do this for the glory of God? As, as, as I spend a few minutes with my kids this afternoon, how, how can that time be used to bring their attention to the Lord's goodness? How can I use my influence with my neighbors, with my coworkers, my in-laws, with acquaintances to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of the Lord with them? In other words, how can I love the Lord with all that I am? This is what we were made for, to worship Him in love. It, it is, it's what we were redeemed for. We were, we were created for this. It's what we were redeemed for. And so as believers, we are doubly purposed to worship God in love. Life in the kingdom is characterized then by exclusive, loving worship of God. Now, the, 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 the scribe here, he only asked for one. What's, what's the most important? Well, Jesus gives him a bonus. He gives him a bonus command, which we will derive a second point from. Life in the kingdom is also characterized by Love for neighbor. Life in the kingdom is characterized by love for neighbor. 
verse 31 reads, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these, the Lord says. Now, when the Lord says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, He's quoting Leviticus 19.18. And if we are thinking biblically, theologically, that is the whole grand storyline of, of Scripture, then we realize that our capacity to love our neighbor is also something that was lost in the fall. Not only, not only was God rejected in Genesis chapter 3, but also God's good design for human relationships. You know, the man and the woman, they did not love one another well in that interaction with the serpent. And part of the consequences of their sin was an ongoing disposition of strife with one another motivated by chronic self-seeking. And as we, as we watch the ensuing storyline of Scripture, we find that disposition of, of chronic self-seeking bearing fruit not only in marriage, but in all human relationships, to the extent that murder, the ultimate expression of man's incapacity to love his neighbor, became so pervasive that God brought cataclysmic judgment upon the earth in the form of the great flood. Man is, man is so bent on self-seeking at the expense of the very lives of his fellow man that after the flood, God instituted corporal punishment, capital punishment, to curb man's bloodlust. So from, from, from the, the, the flood on, if, if a man kills another man, then by men, that man's Blood must be shed because he's created in God's image. Now, that, that storyline alone of, of man's, man's chronic self-seeking, that storyline alone shows how silly it is for some to argue, as they do, that when Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, what he really means is, you can't love your neighbor until you love yourself. You, you've got to learn to love yourself before you can love others. Have you heard people say that? I wish I could say I've only heard that once. Listen, that is nonsense. That is biblical nonsense. The defining characteristic of fallen humans is self-love. Nobody has to teach us that. Nobody has to pursue that. We love ourselves as, as naturally as we shed skin cells. The Bible calls it pride. Man's sinful heart, we just churn out self-seeking. So the storyline of Scripture would, would render that just, that, that, that makes no sense that we should pursue self-seeking, that we might seek the good of others. But the grammar itself here also shows that that's not the right understanding. There is no command here to love self. The command is to love others. It assumes robust love of self. The idea is love your neighbor as much as you already love yourself. And there, you know, there's, there's a reason that, that Jesus calls us to deny self in following Him. If anyone would follow me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. As fallen sinners, we have this automatic overriding concern for our own interests and wants. We, we quite naturally look out for number one. Jesus here, echoing the Old Testament, calls for elevating everyone else to that level of concern in our own eyes and heart. 
Seek what is best for others as we do for ourselves. Or as, as Paul writes it in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's crucial to note that when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he, he means not just those who believe the same as you, and not just those who, who also call God Father and Christ brother, but all people with your, with your thoughts, your actions, your priorities, your resources, pursue the good of others. There's no other commandment greater than these, Jesus says. Worship God in love and love others. There is no commandment greater than these because all, all the other commandments are simply practical expressions of these two. Let me just give you a, a few examples. You, you, you could write these down. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7 reads this way. It'll sound familiar. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It's one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That is simply a way of saying or a way of expressing worship of God alone, loving Him with your whole being. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. This is another one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. That also is, that is simply a way of loving your neighbor. This is, this is also true of the commandments that we find in the New Testament. Ephesians 5.1. Ephesians 5.1 reads this way, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. That's just a way of worshiping God, loving Him with all that you are. We could back up just a few verses in Ephesians. Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That's just a way of saying or a way of expressing love for your neighbor. Some commands in the Old Testament and in the New Testament actually show real overlap between loving God and loving your neighbor. In other words, if, if you command a lot of, if you obey a lot of the commands of God, you, you're loving God and loving your neighbor. And that shouldn't surprise us because a way of loving God is loving those who are created in His image. Now, once again, we, we, we come to the end of, of, of Jesus answering somebody who has asked him a question. And we find that Jesus has answered well. Are we shocked? He's answered really well. And, and so look at the scribe's response in verse 32. And the scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there's no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Shouldn't surprise us that Jesus is answered well. What may surprise us is that his questioner here commends him. You're exactly right, teacher. See, th this scribe, contrary to the others who have confronted Jesus, this scribe must have been an excellent student of the Old Testament. Because he notes that Jesus has rightly summarized what it is that God really wants from man. There is, there is at least one thing worth noting in the scribe's response here. In verse 33, you just glance down there again. He says that this is much more 
than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, that idea originally goes back to 1 Samuel 15. There's this interaction between Samuel and Saul. Saul thought that he could disobey God as long as he offered sacrifices to God. And Samuel corrected him by saying to him, to obey is better than sacrifice. And again, if we follow the grand storyline of the Old Testament, we find that the people of God were pros at separating the outward rituals of worship from true loving worship of God and love for man. They, they worshipped false gods left and right and at the same time denied biblical justice to man. So they were not loving God with all that they are and worshipping Him alone and they were not loving man well. They failed to do what God commanded. They did not give God what He really wanted. And, and, and those two things are the repeated refrain of the prophets as they're warning the people. In Isaiah, through Malachi, we find this over and over. The, the people are worshiping false gods and denying biblical justice to one another while keeping up the pretense of the sacrifices in the temple. And by keeping up the sacrifices at the temple, they thought, well, we're good with God. As long as we just keep sacrificing these, these animals at the temple, then everything's going to be okay. And for that reason, there's just a representative word from one of the prophets on that score. This is Micah in his sixth chapter. Micah wrote, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And here's the answer. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? In other words, you, you know exactly what God really wants from you. And that is for you to love your fellow man and to worship God alone in love. So this scribe interacting with Jesus, he has read the Old Testament well. He knows the propensity of his, of his own people for ages to think that as long as they make sacrifices, they can do whatever, whatever they want. This scribe knows that what God really wants is for, is for man to worship Him in love and to love his fellow man. That is what God wants. And so he says to Jesus, good answer, teacher. You're exactly right. Now, the Lord's response to the, the scribe is also a bit surprising, perhaps. Look at verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. So, Jesus doesn't condemn him, but neither did Jesus say, Welcome to the kingdom. But rather, you are not far from the kingdom. Now, what Jesus says here, 
is encouraging, certainly in light of, of the, the, the interactions that Jesus has had with others in the, in the last chapter. So I, I do believe that this is intended to be an encouraging statement. Look, you're close. But, but put yourself in the situation of the scribe. Put yourself in His shoes. If Jesus said that to you, you're close. You're not far. What would you be thinking next? What would you, you'd want to ask a follow-up question, right? Why, why just not far from the kingdom? Why am I not in the kingdom? And, and, and the reason that he's not in the kingdom is because this scribe's understanding of God's fundamental requirement of man, that is, to exclusively lovingly worship God and to love man, his understanding that that is what God really wants hasn't moved him to run to Christ in despair. See, the, the scribe has read the Old Testament well, but not quite well enough. Nor has he read his own heart very well. What does the law of God reveal but that fallen man is incapable of giving God what he really wants. The scribe is right. God ultimately wants us to worship him alone and to love our neighbor. But knowing that and doing that, two completely different things. And the entirety of the Old Testament, all of human history, and all of personal experience testify. Those are two different things. We can't do it. The prophet Jeremiah, after several after several chapters outlining man's incapacity to worship God in love and to love his neighbor well. He asks this question in Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? And the leopard change his spots? Then also can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil? So, so you've, you've gained some clarity on what God actually wants. Congratulations, but you're not going to be able to do it. Your heart is bent in the opposite direction. The knowledge of what God requires should lead you to despair. Now, everything that we've, we've said so far is absolutely true. In, in the way that we have... We have framed the points of this message. Life in the kingdom is characterized by exclusive loving worship of God and love of neighbor. But, but here's the key missed by the scribe. You and I cannot acquire or earn life in the kingdom by loving God and man because we can't love God and man. We have all failed and therefore we deserve eternal damnation, not life in the kingdom. Life in the kingdom is characterized by love for God and man, but life in the kingdom can only be afforded by the work of Jesus Christ. And that is the final truth that we want to take with us this morning. Life in the kingdom is afforded by the work of Christ. Perfect obedience 
actually is required in order to enter the kingdom. It's just that we, we can't meet that standard for a couple of reasons. First of all, we are literally incapable of perfectly loving God and man. Psalm 14.3 says, There's none who does good, not even one. No one can perfectly love God and man. Second, our failure to do so requires our eternal judgment. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. So we can't be in the kingdom on the basis of our own merit. If we would enter the kingdom, if we're going to be in the, in the kingdom, those two problems, our inability to perfectly obey and the judgment for our disobedience, those two things have to be addressed. We must acquire a perfect record of righteousness and our sin must be, or the wrath for our sin must be satisfied. We're incapable of taking care of either one of those things. We are hopeless in ourselves. Now, the fantastic news and the reason that we gather every Sunday is to celebrate and to worship God the Father and His Son in the Spirit that Jesus' mission was to glorify the Father by addressing those two issues, thereby reconciling God to us and gaining our entrance into the kingdom. Jesus accomplished His mission by addressing our twofold need. First of all, He acquired for us that perfect record of righteousness. Hebrews 4.15 says that He was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. 1 Peter 2.22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. That is, He was tempted not to love God, tempted not to love man, but never failed. The only person who has ever perfectly worshipped the Father in love is Jesus Christ. The only person who has ever perfectly loved man Jesus Christ, which is just another way of saying the only person who has ever perfectly obeyed all of the law of God in thought and deed and word is Jesus Christ, Him alone. He secured that perfect record of righteousness. Second, He satisfied the wrath of God for our sin. How? He was crucified in our place. Our sin and its guilt was charged to His account. So He went to the cross. He suffered and died there in our stead. 1 Peter 2.24 says that He Himself bore our sin in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And all of the Gospels testify that three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, proving that He had defeated sin and death and that He has the right to give life to whom He chooses. Paul synthesizes all of these truths together in one glorious verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21 where he says that for our sake, God the Father, He made Him Christ, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So, there is this unbelievable exchange that takes place. We take Christ's righteousness. He takes our sin. We gain His kingdom. He takes our judgment. It is miraculous. It is miraculous. Now, I say we. I've been saying we. Who's the, who is this we? Well, Mark has been defining this for us. 
He's been defining this, we who benefit from the work of Christ in such a way that we are afforded life in the kingdom. Mark has been telling us who this is. The, 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 the we are all those who repent and trust in Christ. That is, all, all those who turn from sin and self-direction and who follow Christ as Lord, trusting in His righteous life and atoning death to save them from judgment. The scribe was close. Oh, he was so close. Recognizing what God really wants. That, that, that is a first step. But one must also recognize that, that in himself, in ourselves, we are incapable of that standard and therefore guilty before God in our sin. And we must then turn to Christ alone because of His righteous life and His atoning death. We must, we must turn to Him alone to reconcile us to God. He alone can do it. So, what we have said about worshiping God alone in love and loving, loving man, these are not things that reconcile us to God. These are things that we do in response to having been reconciled to God by the work of Jesus Christ. Now, just a brief comment on this last sentence in the passage. After that, no one dared ask him any more questions. See, they, they have all brought him their best question, and Jesus has left them no ammunition for a legit accusation. Jesus could not be tripped up. They will have to murder an innocent man. And they will. What does God really want from me? What does God really want from me? The answer to that question should first cause us to despair. It should secondly lead us to faith in Christ. It should thirdly lead us to joyful obedience. But key is this. Why will I enter life in the kingdom? Why will that life be mine? It is because of Christ's righteous life and atoning death is because His righteous life and atoning death have been credited to me by faith. It is nothing that I have done. Now very quickly, as, as, as we close, we, we've, we've been confronted with some strong calls to love God and worship Him alone and to love our neighbor as ourself and, and to conduct ourselves as believers in a manner commensurate with conduct becoming of Life in the kingdom, and sometimes, some of us, when we, when we hear strong moral commands like that, and we look at our own lives and, and we see that we're not doing so well, we can begin to, to doubt whether or not we know the Lord. And we're tempted to make a misstep at that point. And remedy that situation by squeezing out love for God, squeezing out love for man to earn reconciliation to God after the fact. If you find this morning that you 
are or have failed in any number of ways, loving God well, loving man well, the solution is to repent of those things and turn to Christ in faith. Look to Him. The sufficiency of His righteousness, the sufficiency of His atonement to make you right with God, and then joyfully obey Him in love. It is, it is good to strive to obey, but you've got to do that with a right mindset. We do not strive to obey in order to earn a right standing with God. Our right standing with God is, is in Christ. And so as we seek to obey, we should do so with our eyes on the righteousness of Christ, the atoning death of Christ, and its sufficiency in Him. Resting securely in Him, trusting in Him, then we joyfully worship God in love and love our neighbor as ourself. I'm going to pray here in a, in a moment, and after I pray, we're going to enjoy a moment of silent reflection before the Lord. And, and I would encourage you to just, just think through with the Spirit's help. What is it that the Lord would have you to take with you this morning? Is it that the Lord would have you to to Lay aside fleshly striving. Are, are you seeking to help the Lord, help the Lord Jesus reconcile you to the Father? And this morning, you, you need to really focus on trusting in the sufficiency of Christ. Maybe others, you need to strive. You need to, to look to Christ and you need to strive to worship Christ with everything that you are and to love others as yourself. What is it that the Lord would have you to do as you leave this place? This morning, let's pray. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would now just bring clarity to us. We thank you for your word, its simplicity, and its clarity. We pray now that as as we seek before you and with your help to apply it rightly, that you would grant us, Father, to, to know exactly in each of our individual lives and circumstances what, what you would have us to do, Lord that we would not simply leave this place knowing more or having been reminded of good things, but that we would be moved to walk in obedience. Please help us, Father. In these coming moments, grant us to think of this reflection as worship. Grant us to reflect in worship. Christ's name we pray.